I'd like to invite you to stand this morning and engage in an ancient ritual of the confession of sin. So please stand with me this morning. And we're going to read this together. I'm going to invite you to read it together if you feel like you can read it. I'll read where it says pastor and you will read where it says all. And this is an ancient tradition that is practiced in many liturgical services every single Sunday. It is called the confession of sin and it goes like this. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to set forth his praise, to hear his holy word, and to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things that are necessary for our life and our salvation. And so that we may prepare ourselves in heart and mind to worship him, let us kneel in silence and with penitent and obedient hearts confess our sins, that we may obtain forgiveness by his infinite goodness and mercy. Read with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now receive this. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you of all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, friends, did you hear that confession this morning? Did you participate in it? Do you believe in it? How does it impact your life in a daily way? Now, we are in a series right now called Inquiring Minds, and you have been invited to submit questions or thoughts or comments about various things in the Christian life and in Scripture that you have questions about. And Pastor and Joe and I and the production team have sort of gathered around those things and tried to craft a sermon series around those things. One of the things that we have noticed, and, and Pastor Joe spoke to this last week, is a lot of these questions are, are great questions, but they're kind of impossible to manage from the pulpit, honestly. We need to have some one-on-one -on -one or some small group conversations about some of your questions. They're great questions, and we'll try to mention them and get to them in the way we can, although we can't get to all of them. But some of them are hard because it's a conversation, right? It's not just a preaching. So look for the opportunities for us to do that in the coming days, coming weeks, coming months. So we've tried to craft, right? We've tried to craft sermons sort of that, that grab at the questions under the questions. And then, of course, some of the questions directly as well. And one of the questions that we've gotten a lot, and Pastor Joe mentioned this last, last week, is a question that goes something like this. What is the biblical perspective on X? Whatever X might be. What is the biblical perspective on X? And that's really difficult to talk about because, again, th there's so many. We could spend, you know, years trying to grapple with that. But also because we feel like there's a question under that question. Why is it that we want to understand the biblical perspective on X? What's the motivation there? Why do we, are we so bent on knowing? Is it, is it just so that we don't sin? Well, I, I think yes, but I also think it's more than that. 
when, when Christians ask the question, what's the biblical perspective on X? I think we're also, we're often trying to answer the question, how are we supposed to live? What is right and what is wrong? Again, all of that is great. But if we're not careful with biblical perspectives, they can quickly become a slippery slope that may lead to a kind of deciding what's holy and what's not. Who's holy and who's not? Who's in and who's out? Separation, judgment, and isolation. That's where it could lead, right? Has a good starting place, but it may lead to somewhere problematic. And if we're not careful, we could start to use the Bible as a kind of fence. A fence that separates the good folks. You know how that's always us? The good folks from the bad folks. That separates. And quickly, as Pastor Joe said last week, we can become the technicians of the law who use Scripture as a weapon. As a weapon. So Pastor Joe challenged us to think about biblical perspectives. And he used the story of the woman caught in adultery. And again, asking, where was the man caught in adultery? But he suggested that in that story, Jesus holds multiple perspectives. The multiple perspectives of the people who bring the woman and the woman herself. He sees her through a perspective of grace and a perspective of go and sin no more. And Joe invited us to hold that kind of perspective in our own lives. Because God, aren't you glad, sees us in multiple perspectives. Thanks be to God. So, another question that we got in the last couple weeks goes something like this. Why does it seem like Christians today are so afraid? I don't know if that's been your experience or not. But I think a lot of us have noticed that these days. Why are Christians so afraid? And so, what I want to try to do is answer that question in light of this other question, what is the biblical perspective on X? So I'm taking Joe's question, and I'm taking it a little bit further. Why is it hard for us to hold multiple perspectives? What makes that hard? And I think the answer is fear. By the way, Jasmine and I didn't plan for fear to be her thing and my thing. Spirit works, doesn't it? I want to suggest that it's fear. I want you to think for a moment in the silence of your mind, what do you fear? And just notice what emerges in your mind. What do you fear? By the way, what I'd love to do is go around and find a 20-year-old and say, what do you fear? And then a 40-year-old, what do you fear? And a 60-year-old and a 70-year-old. And you know we fear different things. Life impacts us in different kinds of ways. What do you fear? Next rhetorical question, what happens when you are afraid? What are you tempted to do when you become afraid? Fear isn't a bad thing. Let's remember that, right? It keeps us safe. And there are lots of things to be afraid of in the world. But what makes you feel safe when you're afraid? What do you do? How do you act? What gets stirred up in you when you become afraid? Now, I could spend all morning telling you about scientific study after scientific study that demonstrates when humans are afraid, 
One of the first things we do is we project that fear out into the world on an enemy. We find an enemy. Ooh, we love enemies. And the enemy is seen as the lack of our safety. Their ideas, their lifestyle, they, they, those make us feel unsafe. And if we're not careful, we can begin to shun them, right? We can begin to shame them or discredit them. And throughout the history of Christendom, we have done exactly that. Even using the Holy Scriptures to keep others out, to fence them out, to call them evil and the enemy, and separate ourselves from them. There's a term for this. It's called xenophobia. Fun term, right? To say it together, it starts with an X, not a Z. Xenophobia is the term for the exclusionary fear of the other. Let's keep those others at bay. Let's keep them away from this. And we see this again throughout history, don't we? We even see it in Romans, which I'll come back to in just a moment. We do this to make ourselves feel safe. We do it to give ourselves a false sense of control because it doesn't really make us safe. It just makes us feel like we're safe. We do it automatically, frequently, without really thinking about it. And oftentimes we're spurred on to villainize or make an enemy of someone by the voices and the stories and the messages that we receive outside and sometimes even inside the church. And if we're not careful, we can use Scripture to do it. What's the biblical perspective? Oh, okay, then those people are the enemy. But one thing I'm pretty sure of, friends, is that approach is not Christ-like. As I said, xenophobia doesn't actually keep us safe. It makes us temporarily feel safe. But again, what it can lead to is oppression of the other, exploitation of other people, isolating them, judgment, hurt, and even injustice. So we start off from a really good place. What's right? What's wrong? Potentially to a place of wounding and hurting and not loving our neighbors as ourselves. And when we use the Bible as a dividing fence or a weapon, we search to find the answer to a social issue or a religious question. And then again, we decide we think what is right or wrong. And then we think we can clearly see who else is wrong or right. And then sometimes we ask ourselves a series of questions about those people out there. Have you ever noticed this? What will these others and their crazy ideas and dangerous lifestyles do to us? How will they put us in danger? What will be the cost to us if we don't let them join us? Or if we let them join us? If we let them in, what's going to be the cost? Will they diminish our lives in some way, these others, these enemies? Again, rhetorically, think of a group of people that make you afraid. Have you ever asked those questions in your mind about those people? But the witness of Scripture is that the default position for the body of Christ should always be hospitality, welcoming the other, even as we have received Christ's hospitality on the cross. 
This idea is moving beyond the Bible as an encyclopedia where we can somehow look up an issue in the back, right, and find an answer. This is a movement to a reading of the whole Bible, the grand narrative arc of Scripture, the story of God. And thinking that way through these difficult questions that we need to ask, we need to wrestle with. So I ask you again, did you read that confession today? Did you believe it? How does it change you? Do you know that you once were an enemy of Christ? Don't blame me, blame Paul. That's Romans, friends. This is part of Paul's message in Romans. We were once the other. We were the others, the enemies of God's plan for the world. We threatened others, took matters into our own hands, thought only of ourselves, and put others in danger by selfishness, greed, hunger, and lust. It is only Christ's hospitality that moves us from other to friend. We need to remember that. It is only Christ's hospitality that moves us from other to friend. It's not our good behavior, I hate to tell you, Nazarenes. It's not being connected to someone important or powerful. Sorry if you know someone important and powerful. It's not because you believe a certain thing or live a certain life or belong to a certain club. We are moved from enemy of God to friend of God because of Christ, full stop, period, end of story. Did you hear the confession today? Did you read it? Do you believe it? How does it change your daily life? My fear is that we sometimes actually still still are the other to God. When we use scripture and our human theologies to separate, wound, shame, judge, and deny justice to others. When the Bible becomes a weapon. When the Bible becomes a fence to keep others out. We may use scripture to make ourselves feel safe because we're afraid. But not only were we once other, we also actually are the beneficiary, beneficiaries of the other. Now you've got to follow me carefully because I'm going to use the word other a lot here for a second, okay? But we, not only are we other, but we have been the beneficiary of the other. That is God. That is Jesus. Think about it for a second. God in Christ Jesus is actually the other that no one expected. The other that no one expected. Before I was able to receive the other, Christ, the other, received me and received you. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were other, the other died for you. Did you hear the confession this morning? Did you pray it? Do you believe it? Does it shape you in some kind of way? It could be argued that the Jews were not expecting the God that they got. God was Yahweh, powerful, often angry, of course, relentlessly moving toward them, but they didn't always see that. They seemed to expect a God of wrath that would come in judgment and hopefully wipe out all their enemies and not inadvertently take them out. That's what they expected. Yahweh on a white horse. And what they got was Jesus, a babe in a manger, a God who comes to die 
Paul sums up this God and the implications for our lives when he says in Romans 15, 7, so welcome each other in the same way that Christ has welcomed you for God's glory. You hear it, friends? What's the biblical perspective on X? Well, let's have perspectives. So what am I supposed to do when I'm having perspectives? You are supposed to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for God's glory. Are you with me now? Now, don't forget. Don't forget that in what Paul is doing here in Romans is responding to a pretty serious othering issue going on in Rome. The Jews and the Gentiles are having a problem. In Rome, Romans, we understand that there is a cultural uh, conflict going on between Gentiles and Jews. I'm glad we don't have cultural conflicts today. I'm glad we don't have othering today. These groups of people don't trust one another. They don't think the other belongs. The Gentiles do not make the Jews feel safe, and the Jews definitely don't make the Gentiles feel safe. Enemies. Enemies. Othering. And Paul says, welcome each other in the same way that Christ has welcomed you for God's glory. But Paul, these Gentiles, do you know what they do? Do you know what they think? Do you know how they act? Kind of do, says Paul. <laughs> Matter of fact, welcome. Welcome them. And the Gentiles, hey, Paul, your people are mean. I'm not sure I want to be part of that club. They won't even let me in. They want me to do all sorts of weird stuff to my body to be a part. Welcome them. In the same way that Christ Jesus has welcomed you. So friends, fear has been with us for a long time. Fear is always operating underneath. It's the thing that can cause us, without even meaning to, to go from a good question to a bad action. Fear moves us to othering. Fear moves us to villainizing. Fear moves us to making an enemy of a child of God. So how in the world do we move from fear to love? How do we move from fear to love? Well, from 1 John chapter 4, I want to invite you to hear these words. Beginning at verse 7. Dear friends, let's love each other. Because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God has sent his only son into the world so that we can live through him. This is love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice to deal with our sins. Dear friends, if God loves us this way, we also ought to love each other, the other. No one has ever seen God. If we love each other, God remains in us. And his love is made perfect in us. And jumping down to verse 18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. We love God 
Because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates a brother or sister, he's a liar. Because the person who doesn't love a brother or sister who can be seen can't love God who can't be seen. This commandment we have from him, those who claim to love God ought to love one another. In verse 18 in this passage, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment. We need to remember that the listeners would have heard this and when they heard the word punishment, they would have thought about God's punishment for them. God's punishment for them. We, those who were once other enemies of God, should fear God. Except, except because of God's perfect love, right? Because of God's perfect love, we no longer have to be afraid. So here's the math of this. It's tricky when you try to turn scripture into math. But I'm going to try. You stay with me. It's more, it's more like, a, it's more like a, 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 a program or something. Here, here's how it sounds in my head. Here's the math. We love because God first loved us. We were the other till the other God loved us. God is love, and because he loved us, we must love one another. Because the other loved us when we were enemies, we are now to love the enemies in our lives, those who make us afraid. And when we love the other, I believe First John is saying, we are moved towards God. When we love the neighbor, the enemy, the other, we are moved towards God. And I've said this to you before, but you don't remember, so I'll say it again. And that is, I truly believe that at the center of every temptation we experience in our lives, even to use the Bible as a weapon or to use it as a fence, keeping people out. At the heart of every temptation is a basically a fear that God is not going to show up for us. Think about that for a minute. Take that home with you. Play around it with it in your mind about some of the temptations that you experience. See if you can drill down to where you could find out that maybe underneath whatever that temptation is, that somehow your basic fear is that God is not going to show up for you. And because you're afraid, and because you're tempted to believe that God is not going to show up for you, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands, don't we? We overreach. We overstep. We frequently wound ourselves and others. And in doing so, we become the other of God. We become the enemy of God once again. The God who says to us in Jesus Christ, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not use the Holy Scriptures to keep them out. So while perfect love drives out fear... It's also true that unrestrained fear drives out perfect love. Unrestrained fear, our fear, drives out love. It's a famous story that Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist African-American who spoke widely against slavery before and during the Civil War, 
It was said that he was speaking right before the Civil War to a group of African-American Christians. Sojourner Truth, another abolitionist, woman, African-American, child of God, was in the audience that day. And Frederick Douglass was speaking and preaching eloquently and powerfully as he was known to do. And he was talking about all the kinds of atrocities that have happened to people who are held in slavery. And he said to the audience, there's no hope that whites will ever grant freedom for black people. Whites, Frederick Douglass said, only understand violence. And Sojourner Truth, sitting in the audience, raised her hand. She said, Frederick, is God dead? You hear it? Is God dead? You see, when we're tempted to use the Bible as a weapon, when we're afraid, we live as if God is dead. We overreach. We decide, well, the only way out of this is violence. The only way out of this is othering. The only way out of this is keep those people away, whatever it is. We go beyond and we act as if God is dead. Sojourner Truth was saying to Frederick Douglass, you act as if God is dead, that there's no hope. And we have to be afraid, and we have to return violence with violence. But God's not dead, Sojourner Truth says. Did you hear the confession this morning? Did you participate in it? Did you believe it? How does it impact your life, sinners? who have been reconciled by the other. What I'm trying to do today is show you a different way to interact with Scripture. That's what a lot of the questions are about that you sent to us. The question under the question is, how do I read Scripture? How do I interact with Scripture? And when we become afraid, as a group of Christians, or even as individual Christians, we can be tempted to go looking for passages in Scripture that support our fear and allow us to other someone or a group or an ideology. We go and we find the Bible. We, we use the Bible like an encyclopedia or a dictionary. Let me look this up. And, oh, there's a passage about that. That answers all my questions. That makes me feel safe. But what I'm suggesting to you today is that we need to interact with Scripture, the full testimony of Scripture. The full testimony of Scripture, which is always anchored in the triune God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, and the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a weapon. It's a welcome to all into the kingdom of God. Did you hear the confession? Did you believe it? Does it impact your life in some way? Friends, do not be afraid. For God is our ever-present help. So I want to give us a moment to reflect together and think on these words and hear the Spirit speaking to you. This isn't a sermon actually of guilt. It's not a sermon to make you feel bad. It's a sermon of invitation to not be afraid.
So we're going to sing a little bit. And I invite you to sing with Mateo and the worship team. And in between choruses here, I'm going to read some scripture to you. Some scripture that has everything to do with fear not. Some people say it's the number one command in the Bible. The thing that's said most frequently. Some version of do not be afraid. So hear these words and sing with us and reflect and may the Spirit speak to you. My friends, do not be afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41, verse 10. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff protect me. Psalm 23, 4. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can others do to me? Hebrews 13, 5. Yeah, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And I'm no I invite you to stand as we hear these last few passages and we sing this together. I pray that you will take these verses and you will hear these words and that you will sing this song. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. Sing. I'm no longer a slave to I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalms 27, verse 1. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am 
imagine that some of you are thinking of your own favorite fear verse right now. (laughs) I may not get to it, but here's one of my favorites because I love how it starts. Don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid, little flock. Because your father delights in giving you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. Sing. Longer. the good news today do not be afraid and now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine by the power at work within us and in Christ Jesus to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations and all God's unafraid people said